Hello. What's up, dude? Not too much. How you doing? I'm doing all right. You're keeping me from the comic shop, but other than that, <laughs> I'm doing all right. I don't well, need to I, be spending money anyway. I apologize <laughs> to the I apologize to the comic shop for potentially putting them out of business. <laughs> And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast Stop it! What's in the box? Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spitaro and he is Scott Gordon. Hello. Hello. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? I'm all right. No complaints. Busy, but busy is good. Busy is definitely good. So we are, our mailbox is caught up. I'm all, I'm all excited about that. <laughs> uh, but but you know what? I haven't looked at it since we did the, the email show. So it's possible it's clogged up again. <laughs> I, I hope so, because I, I was talking to a friend of the show the other night, um, I, I don't know if I should say who it was because he, he kind of mildly took us to task because he was like, you know, I, I wanted I was going to write in and you know, he's telling me this story about, you know, related to podcasting and to the show and everything. He's like, and I was going to write in, but, uh, you know, I figured, you know, I, I didn't want it to be, you know, I think he said like, you know, two years from now when you guys get around to reading and I was like, ouch, <laughs> I was like, dude, we just recorded a, a feedback episode and cleared out the mailbag. But, I, you know. But I, I couldn't object too much because he was right. You know, we're we're yeah. not exactly on top of it. You know, it's one of those you know when we think about it type of things. So we'll we'll try to do better about that in the future. Well, what, but... I, what I will try and do to do better is I will try and remember to look in the mailbox when we're doing a show, <laughs> so that if there's one or two things, we just read them. We don't have to do a special email show. Now, currently right. looking in the mailbox, the only thing in here, uh, the only thing in here is I had a uh, a, a Facebook PM. Uh, from a listener, uh, and I all I did was just forwarded it to the uh, email box so that when we did email, I would remember it. But that's the only thing in there right now, so I'm going to read it. It's from uh, Anthony Rotella, and he says, Been a fan since Scott did Bin Solo. Rarely right. Wow. I enjoy the show with yourself, Wait, Bill. Wait, rarely right? Is that what he, he said? Right, W-R-I-T-E, meaning oh. he rarely <laughs> okay. writes. I although I was barely right, which I, although I that I one could be taken both ways and still be correct. <laughs> I enjoy I enjoy the show with yourself, Bill, Scott, Andy and Arthur Ratnick. FYI, <laughs> I can vividly remember buying Fantastic Four number one off the rack and being confused how they could be together again for the first time. I assume that means uh, it was one of the, uh, you know, the new volumes. 
where is it now? Anyway, you mentioned a risque rumor about sex practices, or you mentioned, I guess it, he meant mentioned. I remember a similar story from grammar school, late 50s, where they talked about a similar act featuring victim mature with banana peels. I think he's talking about when I mentioned uh, Cesar Romero with the uh, right. orange right. peels. Well, I just had to comment at the memory uh, as the memory came rushing back. Thanks for the entertainment and think about doing a Jaws or commentary on Streets of Fire with Diane Lane. I do like Diane Lane. Unique fantasy R&R fable film. All right, well, you know what? I will consider that. I don't think I've ever actually seen Streets of Fire, but I do remember I do remember there being such a movie. I just never actually sat down and watched it. Uh, I've recently heard, <laughs> just as long as we're getting so risque, I recently heard another uh, old rumor. Uh, and, then, you know, it's, I'll, I'll say this in... Uh, in terms where it won't get dirty it won't get uh it won't it won't use foul language at least but apparently the rumors are that danny thomas would pay hookers to sit on a glass table while he was underneath and and have them defecate ew yeah danny thomas yeah yeah. Okay. <laughs> that is that is apparently the rumor. Uh, I heard that, and I looked, you know, trying trying to to look into the internet without going to porn sites and and research something like that is not the easiest thing in the world. Uh, and I found this video. <laughs> yeah, but but you know what what I what I looked the purpose of my looking was is this really a rumor or is this just somebody being you know somebody something that somebody created recently. But apparently it is a rumor that has made the rounds a little bit. Wow. So whether or not it's reality, I don't know. The story I heard was that somebody who worked with Marlo Thomas's legal team inquired about it and was told, well, the man built hospitals. Like they didn't actually <laughs> comment on the, on the action. But uh, so that makes just, it OK. <laughs> well, I, I think I think it meant let's just let's cut him some slack on this because he's done good otherwise. Right. Which, you know, well, I, you know what? Honestly, while I consider that act to be very, very weird and I would get no stimulation whatsoever out of it. Uh, who is he hurting? Who's the one he he was? I guess he was redheaded. I don't know, like strawberry blonde. Um, Danny. Oh, uh, Danny Kay. Danny Kay. That's who I thought you meant at first. And that would kill me because I, I have this like angelic image of Danny Kay as like just a super nice guy, you know, that sort of thing. The other Danny Thomas, now that I drop a mental image, yeah, I could kind of buy it. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, hey, you know, we, we all have our fetishes. So, you know, more power to him. <laughs> I like, I, like I said, uh, you know, it's 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 not my thing, but who is he hurting? Right. You know, other than the poor glass table. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, that that, that is that is our uh, that is our risque moment for today's podcast. 
So long as he wasn't pulling a Grand Theft Auto and running them over to get his money back afterwards, you know, then okay. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so today we got two books to look at, which works out well because there's two of us. Uh, yeah. And I have the Marvel and you have the DC. And I'm, before we get to it, I'm going to just say I like your choice generally of the DC only because it's a series that always just makes me kind of look and cock my head a little, but I never, ever read it. So I'm kind of, well, there, I'm kind of happy that you chose there it. Was kind of, that, was, that was kind of the reasoning behind it. We'll, we'll get into it more when we get to my book. But, yeah, I, you know, I don't know if the, the listeners are necessarily aware of this, but I, I'm always on the lookout for, you know, things that we haven't ever touched on on the show. I mean, you know, yes, I, I could just grab another Superman comic or another issue of Brave and the Bold, but – you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to constantly go into left field, but you know, I, I want to, you know, have there be some variety in our show too. I don't want to get stale. I don't want to get predictable. And I'm sure that, um, you know, that there are titles out there, characters out there, genres out there that we've never touched on that have their fans that may be itching for us. Because I was shocked by the response we got to the War Books episode, because I've never been a fan of War Books myself. I, I kind of tend to just dismiss them and forget about them. But we got a lot of positive feedback to the War Books episode that we did. So, you know, that's why I wanted to to put the call out again to the listeners, you know, if there's something you want to hear us talk about that you, you know, we just don't, or we don't talk about enough or whatever, let us know. I mean, I, I'd be happy to look into it. Yeah. Oh, definitely. So going, you know, just to, to, to be predictable, I picked a Captain America book. <laughs> And I took Captain America number 180, which I know immediately filled Scott with fear that it was going to be a Frank Robbins book. Yes. <laughs> and the cover, the cover is by Gil Kane uh, and inked by Frank Giacoya, which I think doesn't do anything to make you think, okay, this is not a Frank Robbins book. So you, you got to dig inside and yeah. see that it's written by Steve Englehart. And it's, the penciler is actually Sal Buscema. Inked by everyone's favorite, Vince Coletta. <laughs> colored by Linda Lessman, Les Lessman's uh, older sister. Uh, lettered by Tom Orzakowski and edited by Roy Thomas. The cover has one of those time-lapse uh, drawings where Captain America is running from the background to the foreground. And it starts as Captain America, and then he's changing as it goes along. And then he's, by the time he's... In the foreground, he's nomad, and he's coming at uh, two, three, I guess three thugs, one of which you only see his hands, uh, who are firing guns at him. Uh, now, my this... biggest complaint about the cover is right about where the title ends, there's a line to separate the, the background color from the uh, color, the background color in the, uh, on the actual cover itself. But, you know, it's Gil Kane, dynamic as usual. Uh, you know, Bill would be happy because one of the thugs, you do get kind of an up-the-nose shot. <laughs> I like this cover a lot, but, you know, I, I don't know if it's necessarily so much a Marvel Comics trope, but it is a trope of comics, especially DC Comics, 
that this multi-image thing is typically associated with characters that are exhibiting super speed. And so that's kind of what it looks like. It looks like somehow Cap has gained the ability to to change costumes at super speed. That's what it looks like. He's like he's doing a flash essentially. You know, the the multiple the multiple images thing. But, you know, that that aside or that forgiven, it's still a really dynamic cover. Um this this has nothing to do with this book or anything, but I was really happy today. Um, I forget what group it was, some group that I'm a part of on Facebook. Somebody had posted an old um, DC Comics Superman. I think it's from one of those like DC samplers or something like that. But there was a promotional thing um, that uh, Gil Kane had illustrated, um, basically saying, you know, if you haven't checked out Superman lately, you know, here's all the exciting things that are happening. It was talking about like. Uh, when Superman and Lois broke up and then Clark and Lana were, were dating and getting, you know, pretty serious and everything. All these different, you know, Perry White was having troubles, all these different things. But it was this really beautifully illustrated piece by Gil Kane because he was the artist on one of the two titles, either Action or Superman, I forget, during that time. And I was just so happy with the comments on there. Because there were one or two that were like, yeah, you know, I never really liked Gil Kane, but you know, overwhelmingly, the the comments were were really positive, and there was just a lot of love being given for uh, for Gil Kane, and it just made me feel so good because I've always liked Gil Kane, but I'm especially a fan of of his stuff on Superman in the in the early '80s because uh, you just don't hear it really talked about enough, but I, I think he did some really fine work on that, and. He's one of those artists that didn't seem to suffer as badly as other artists did by that thing where, you know, the the longer they were in comics, the more their work kind of deteriorated. And, you know, by the end, they just, you know, it was hard to look at. He never really seemed to to fall victim to that, at least to my mind anyway. No, Um, I I agree. Uh, But I've always felt that Gil Kane is uh, a taste that's acquired as you get older. I think I think young kids, it's there's there's a little too much line work. There's a little bit too much. There's a rough edge to Gil Kane's work, which I love now. But as a young kid, it it was it was a little harsh for me to to enjoy. I'll I'll agree and I'll disagree. I'll, I'll agree in the aspect of, of um, there were certain he he's kind of like Carmen Infantino to me in a in a way because. Um, I've always liked Gil Kane and I've always liked Carmine Infantino, but there were certain projects that they would do that I liked better than others. Like when Carmine did The Flash, for example, I think that's terrible. I, I'm sorry, I just never liked it. Um, when Gil Kane did Star Trek, I thought his Star Trek was terrible too. Um, but that that aside, um, generally, I've always really liked his stuff uh, quite a bit. But I, I agree with you. He's one of those ones that I look at and I'm kind of confounded as to why I like him so much because his style is very similar to other artists that I don't like, like, say, Joe Kubert, for example. Um, I see them as being, you know, very much in, in kind of the same mold, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of those Kubert-isms that Kane has that I kind of tend to just overlook and, and embrace, um, so it's weird. I, I don't know wh- wh- why my brain works that way, where 
you know, they're, they're so similar and I like one and don't really like the other, but you know, it is what it is. But I, I really do like Gil Kane and, uh, and I dig this cover. I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, no, I, I definitely dig the cover. Uh, now just looking at it a little more closely, the, uh, you know, you see, you see cap running and basically changing to nomad. You see the people in the front. Then there's, there's this yellow, what appears to be concrete background. Is that supposed to be a building? That's the one area yeah, where this cover kind of lacks a little bit. Yeah, I think it's I, supposed I don't to be. Know. I think it's supposed to be a building in the background, but I can't even tell that for sure. Yeah, a building or a parking structure or something. I I don't know what that is exactly. And that that one guy, the guy on the on the far right of the, you know, the, the right corner of the, he looks like he's nailing Nomad pretty much center mass with with that gun. So. Although the guy on the left doesn't look like he's missing either. Right? Yeah, it looks like he might be winging him like in the in the ribs or something. But yeah. And the, and the dude in the yeah, middle just right. got cool hair. <laughs> so getting to the story, uh, you know, it opens up. It, well, I, oh yeah, I already mentioned the creative team. Uh, the issue before this. You know, we, we had the situation where Steve had stopped being Captain America because he was disenchanted. The whole, you know, Rich, Richard Nixon leading the secret uh, society or the, the secret whatever it was at the time. Uh, and, you know, he, he kind of just was totally done. Uh, and then Hawkeye uh, dressed up as uh, the Golden Archer and uh, convinced him that he had too much to offer to uh, not be a superhero of some sort. Uh, so he, he went, he goes off, he's, he's, you know, think, thinking about it. He gets uh, almost run over by a cab and does a flip in it. And just by the way, he does have also a fabulous pair of checkered pants on, uh, and he's, he's, ju he's jumping over it. Somebody mistakes him for Robert Redford. Then we cut from there to, uh, a, a uh, government car where uh, U.S. Marshals are transporting the Viper, who for reasons that escape me is still allowed to have his mask on. Uh, the, the car gets attacked with gas bombs and then the, uh, the agents get shot. And then Madame Hydra, uh, who will henceforth be played by, uh, what's it? Uh, I can't even think of her name. Julia Louise Dreyfus. Uh, right. <laughs> confronts him and then shoots him the viper actually killing him then she strips him of his costume which i don't know exactly why because she doesn't assume the same costume even though she assumes the identity of the viper uh then we have uh we cut from there to a jail where princess python uh frees the eel and the cobra so that the serpent squad can live again we go to uh Steve Rogers again, in, in, who's in Sharon, Rogers, Sharon Carter's apartment, uh, otherwise known as the power broker. Uh, and he gets a phone call from the police commissioner and formally tenders his resignation to uh, the job that he previously held as a police officer, which I don't know if people are aware of that aspect of Steve Rogers' career. Sharon shows up. The two of them talk. Uh, he he basically lets her know that he's planning to uh, assume a new costumed identity. She is not happy, and he goes off to walk. And she basically says, if you want to do this, go ahead, but I won't go with you. 
we cut to a meeting of the Serpent Squad, and they're, they're all, it's, this is not exactly the most plush of uh, headquarters. It looks like they're sitting, all sitting on boxes, and the table, the makeshift table also looks to be a box. Uh, and uh, what you call it? She, she what you call it? Madame Hydra lets them know that she's taking on the identity of the, of the Viper and makes it sound like uh, the original Viper was killed in his battle against uh, against the forces of order, and there was nothing she could do, but that he's adopted this the name as a memorial to him, because the eel is actually the Viper's brother. And they they have a flashback to uh, her former activities and how she went to uh, what's her name uh, Princess Python and reformed the Serpent's Squad. Cobra says, yeah, if we're going to have it, I'm, I'm going to be the leader of this. And she basically kicks his butt uh, with very little effort. Cobra's kind of a wuss. And then he just backs down and says that he'll follow her. We cut to uh, Sharon, uh, or rather, uh, Steve, who uh, is actually staying with Sharon's parents, I guess. Uh, and he designs a new costume for uh, his identity as Nomad, and we get a full-page splash of him did, in the costume. Did that, did that strike you as weird, that he goes to stay with her folks without her? When, Especially when she basically just said that she's you know, disavowing this. Yeah. You know, it would be different if she said, oh, I can't go with you, but I support you, so you know, go to my parents' house and I'll meet up with you eventually. But, yeah, it's definitely weird. I don't know why they did that with the story, frankly. So, I, I just thought it was, I mean, he hadn't even met them as Steve. Now, he had met them as Cap, but, of course, they don't know that he's Captain America. So he'd never met them as Steve Rogers. So, essentially, he's meeting his girlfriend's parents for the very first time and staying in their home without her. And that's just to me, that was just bizarre. I, fr I, frankly, I mean, meet, meeting a girlfriend's parents for the very first time is always a, a somewhat <laughs> uncomfortable moment. Right. To do it without right. her there and, and stay at the, you know, have the, oh, here's your room. That's <laughs> really. Although that's some room because it looks like it's got a fireplace in it. <laughs> and Steve's got the skills because he sews his own costume. And then we have a full page splash of him in the costume. And uh, for the most part, it's it, well, not for the most part, it is all black and yellow. He's got yellow buccaneer boots, uh, yellow, you know, wide, wide base gloves. Uh, he's got, you know, a blue bodysuit with a yellow uh, belt. And then, you know, it, it opens up to expose his chest, which I guess, you know, was a costume thing of the 70s and 80s. And then he's got a cape, which is blue on the back, yellow on the inside, uh, with two, what do they call them, epaulets that hold it to his, uh, to the costume. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what that's, I just call them buttons. I really don't yeah, know what they're called. Yeah, big yellow buttons. I, I love this splash, and I love the basic look of the, now the, the, the plunging neckline thing is a little much. He looks a little bit too much like, uh. The, the first incarnation of, uh, of Nightwing. That's exactly <laughs> what it makes me think of. But did you notice that it, it doesn't look a thing like the cover as it was shown on, or excuse me, the costume as it was shown on the cover? I mean, well, the, co the cover has 
yellow, uh, blue and red, and the boots are red, and then the other areas that are yellow, well, and the boots, are, actually the boots and gloves are blue, rather, and the only things that are right. red are the inside of the cape, the two buttons, and the belt. So it's a much, right. much darker look. Yeah. I think that's that's the big difference. But, you know, if you were trying to, you know, take the Batman thing and, and you know, strike fear into your, uh, your your potential opponents, I think the darker look is probably more effective. He's, right. he's also got the, you know, the mask where it, it ends at your forehead, so it exposes your hair, and then it just goes down to his neck and ends because it has to leave his his chest bare. <clears throat> now, do you like that kind of cowl? The exposed never, hair cowl? I've never been a big fan of the exposed hair cowl. I mean, there are times when it works, but it's not, it's definitely not my go-to. Yeah, me either. The, the only time to, to a quick, quick recollection. Anyway, the only time I ever really liked it was, uh, uh, earth to Robin for a time had a cowl like that. And I actually kind of liked the look of that, that whole costume he had, but as a general rule that, that open top cowl thing with, you know, the hair cowl, I call it, I just, I don't know. It just looks kind of goofy to me. Yeah, the, the this person, one looks a little goofy only in the sense it's not attached to anything. Yeah. The person who it comes most to mind for me is Cyclops. And I definitely did not like it. Yeah. 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 It, it does seem a little weird. Like, you know, it, it almost feels it almost feels like one of those uh, the, those domino masks. Like, who are you fooling with this thing? Yeah. yeah, you're not really hiding much. So then, continuing in the book, just to mention as an aside, there is a uh, Marvel value stamp of the Red Ghost. <laughs> and it's one of his super apes. Yes, he he looks uh, he looks a little like Mickey Rooney in that one. that was the uh the end of part one and we get to uh part two which opens up at the welfare office run by sam snap wilson and uh a guy named roscoe is coming over who uh he met steve at the gym and somehow referred him over to here and Roscoe has kind of the annoying when written Brooklyn accent. I can deal, <laughs> I can deal with it orally, but when it's written, it's kind of annoying. Ain't this a kick in a head in a teat. I bend the rules to scam Mr. Rogers address in the gym registry. And then this he is what you home. sound like all the time. What are you talking about? But that, maybe that's why I find it so offensive. <laughs> so actually so he wasn't referred no, there by steve rogers he went there looking for steve rogers my mistake uh and sam is there in his falcon costume who confronts him and says you know you made a mistake uh what's called that he was patrolling the area uh he says that he's you know captain america and the falcon have nothing to do with each other anymore roscoe says i know that's the point uh you know, he, he wants to become the new Captain America, and he's asking Falcon to be his trainer. Uh, he, he wanted to ask Steve to be his trainer, actually. And uh, Falcon says, that's the craziest thing I have heard. Why don't you go home? It's getting late, and you're going to – and if you're going to dream, you might as well be in bed. Yeah, and why don't you go suck a peach, bird brain? We'll see who's dreaming. And he leaves. <laughs> 
cut to uh, Steve, who is now patrolling in his nomad costume. And as he's doing so, he sees uh, a, a basically a, you know an uproar at a at I guess it's a movie theater uh, where it says world premiere, world premiere Captain America, and uh, they're kidnapping somebody actually. Oh, is this the one with the guy with the plastic ears? Hmm? No, nothing. <laughs> you remember that? What year was that? It was like 19, like 90, 91. There was that really shitty Captain America with the Italian red skull. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, and, uh, and it had uh, Ronnie Cox and uh, Ned, Ned Beatty. Beatty were in it. And it yeah, That's the one Captain where you have to pee to get away. Maybe. I only ever saw it once and then tried to purge my brain of it. So, yeah, it's it was terrible. But when he has the Captain America costume on, which, you know, you got to give him credit. The, the costume looked pretty good because it was comics accurate. Um, but, you know, when when Cap has his cowl on, his ears stick out the side of the cowl. You know, the, he, they basically go through holes in the side of the cowl. Well, rather than do that, the movie one, he just had plastic ears on the outside of the cowl. It looked absolutely ridiculous. So, okay. uh, yeah, I you just, know what? I, I don't think I've ever watched that all the way through. I think I've just seen clips. Oh, it's terrible. So as the Serpent Squad is uh, abducting this guy uh, – and then, then we cut to the inside, and we and we see the the movie going on. It's apparently a a documentary because it says it's a uh, compila- compilation of newsreel footage shot over the past thirty years. I don't know what a compilation is, but I assume is it's that a, is that a yeah is that a word? <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. I, I, I assume <laughs> it's the same thing as a compilation, though. <laughs> so then, while 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 the film is showing. Uh, Nomad is confronting the Serpent Squad in the same theater, and they're doing battle. He he basically lays out the uh, the eel. Uh, he pulls a curtain down on Madame Hydra. Uh, he, you know, it's, uh, Princess Python has her uh, snake attack him, and he he just like throws it at her. He flips the cobra over, so he's he's really doing well against him. Until he goes to run, and his foot gets caught on on his cape, a la Mr. Incredible, uh, and he falls flat on his face, allowing the Serpent Squad to escape. He uh, he just tears the uh, cape off. Then we go back to the uh, makeshift hideout of the uh, of the Serpent Squad, and uh, we find out that the guy they abducted is the president of. Roxon Oil, the uh, big conglomerate, and we have need of his knowledge and resources. When I say we, I speak of ourselves and one other, a silent partner in our enterprise, hitherto unknown to anyone but myself. I speak of, and then he bursts in, the warlord Krang, my dear. And uh, Krang, who is a submariner villain, uh, comes in and he's got his head in a globe of water, obviously to keep alive, and he's holding the serpent crown aloft uh, in a very dramatic pose. And uh, what's called Madame Hydra or Viper, whatever you want to call her, 
says, in a few days, my friends, we shall rule the world. And then uh, it ends off saying, Krang. And Steve and Sal just got through with Kang over in the Avengers. But don't get confused, Pilgrim. The next ish is nothing like you've seen before. Be here for no longer a sleep in the deep. I could, I could, who did the, was it William Conrad that did the uh, Bullwinkle and Rocky narration? Because I'm hearing it in that voice. I think you're right. Yeah, 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 I think you're right. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 gave a, I gave a lot of my commentary as I was reading it along. But uh, despite <laughs> the fact that I was making fun of some of the silliness of it, I love this issue. I think this is a lot of fun. Oh, I, I do, too. I, you know, yeah, you're right. There is a lot of silly in it. And uh, while I, I really enjoy the pencils, the overall finished art is very lacking because uh, of uh, a real hatchet job on this by uh, by Coletta on the inks. But despite its shortcomings, yeah, I think this is a fantastic issue. I really enjoy it. I, I like this entire era and a lot of that. Um, honestly, is due to uh, to Steve Englehart. I think he just he had a real handle uh, on this character, and uh, his run on Cap is just really fun. It's exciting. It moves. There's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, he juggles a lot of subplots and things. Um, but yeah, it's just a lot of fun. I, I read through this whole era um, not long ago. Uh, doing a, a cap read through and it was just a blast i really like this uh, i was really sad when uh when Engelhart's run came to an end because uh yeah he was really he was really firing through all this stuff i i agree he he really had a great run and he did so with a lot of different artists including frank robbins and i don't want to belabor frank robbins at this point but i know you are not a fan at all of his uh i've come no. to i've come to like his work but at the time these were coming out, I was not a fan of his work. Uh, and despite that, it was, you know, I was fine still reading them, even though, you know, his his work was kind of rough for a young kid to read. <laughs> Excuse me. Now, in fairness, I, I like Frank Robbins as a writer because he, he did a, a lot of work on Batman um, right around this the same general time. And I like his writing on Batman. I just don't care for his art in general. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, Google does not recognize the word compilation. So it keeps referring me to compilation, which I think is the word Engelhart was going for. So, <laughs> or, or, you know, maybe he was, maybe he was trying to, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, remember, it was, it was in the, uh, the movie that they said it. And, Maybe he was making fun of the movie makers because it's probably the, uh, you know, the what you call it, the, the narration of the film itself that's saying, right? It, you know? maybe, maybe 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 it was an intentional uh, error. <clears throat> I thought the the little trope of as things are being shown or or spoken in the uh, in the movie that's playing on the screen that they were being mirrored by actions that Nomad was taking during the fight as well. I, I thought doing one or two of those was, was kind of cute, but then it, it got really old. It was like this continuing back and forth, you know, between those. And it just, I don't know, it got kind of a little annoying and a little silly after a bit, but that was really one of my, my few complaints with the issue. I really like this. I, I think the, the cliffhanger is really cool too. Cause I always liked, uh, 
the serpent crown. Krang is one goofy looking dude, though. That that would be a great one to to cosplay as right there at a at a convey if you could figure out how to how to pull it off because it's just such a goofy look. You know, I, I always I've often thought that a lot of uh, comic book underwater characters really have kind of a silly look when you think about the fact that they're supposed to be operating, you know, in the bottom of the ocean, and right. you know, here's this guy wearing essentially you know your standard superhero type outfit you know with with the shorts and the boots and he's even got a cape and i'm like you know gloves and and like how does he swim around under the water with all that crap on you know i mean at least namor i mean namor's got trunks that's it you know so he looks like he belongs in the ocean this guy man not so much He, he looks like he belongs on you know, he looks like Ming the Merciless with a bowl on his head, essentially, is what he looks like. So, yeah, he looks like he, he belongs better on a spaceship than he does under the ocean. But, but yeah, I'm always a sucker for the for the serpent crown. And if I remember properly, I'm trying to remember. I think I looked this up after I read it. If I remember my note, I, I didn't write down actual notes, but if I remember the notes I looked at on this on some wiki somewhere or something, I think this is the first mention of rocks and oil in the comics. And, you know, that became quite a quite a big thing that's even been brought into the to the MCU now. Yeah, well, Speaking they, of, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I think they are starting to bring that in. And definitely it's it's a rich area to go into. Right. So what were you going to say? Oh, speaking of MCU, I was I really got a kick out of uh, when Cap is flipping around and jumping over the cars and everything at the very beginning, which, by the way, if I was the guy in the blue car on page two, I think I'd be really pissed with somebody just bouncing off the roof of my car in traffic. Especially you but, know, the, uh, the roof of the car doesn't really have a lot of, uh, right. you know, I mean, that's not made for, for the weight of a person. Right. And Cap, if I remember right, I mean, I haven't looked at who's who, or I mean, um, oh, Hotmoo in years. But if I remember right, I think Cap is supposed to be, a, you know, for for this time period where your average guy weighed, what, 160, 180 pounds, something like that. People were much thinner and everything back then, smaller. I think Cap is always meant to have weighed like 220 or, or so, you know, something yeah, like I that. Say. I mean, he's always supposed to have been heavy. So, I mean, here's a 220-pound dude bouncing off the roof of your friggin' car in traffic. Yeah, that that would that would tend to piss you off. But uh, I, I love the guy, and you pointed him out in your synopsis, where uh, he sees Cap and he goes, wow, that's got to be Robert Redford. I just get a kick out of that, seeing as how Robert Redford has now become part of, you know, Captain America's mythos, you know, within the MCU. You know, he played... Uh, the director there, whatever the hell his name was, but yeah, I, I just I think that his name either, but yeah, yeah he, he played a great really part cool. actually. Oh yeah, he absolutely did. Although I still, you know, I, I love that movie, you know, Winter Soldier, and I love the part he played and all. But if I still, if I had my druthers, when when Redford was first uh, announced to be in that sequel, I really thought and I really hoped that he was going to be playing the '50s Cap, and I, I still wish that that. It could have happened somehow. I always thought that had been really neat if he had turned out to be the the cap of the 1950s. But that that could have been awesome. I have to admit, and I think we talked yeah. about that as a possibility back then. But you know, right? Unfortunately, no. I was I was sad to see Viper killed off before he got a chance to uh, to have a story called "I Have No Mouth But I Must Scream" because he'd be perfect for it. So. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I, I kind of always got a kick out of that look, the, 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 the total Creepy. face mask. Yeah, exactly. For, for a, a snake guy, it just, especially the way the eyebrows are. Yeah. It really just makes for a creepy look. Yeah. Yeah, he is creepy. He was annoying, though. I, I think he'd be one of those characters much better served by really not speaking because he does have that really creepy face and creepy look and everything. So if he was just kind of silent, you know, had a, had a whole snake eyes thing going, I think that would have made him more effective. But instead, he had that stupid thing where he talked in like ad man speak or something. And it was really kind of weird and, and kind of distracting, but eh, now he's dead. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> I love here. I remember thinking this as I was doing my read through, but I love the moment where, where cap calls uh, the commissioner and he's basically like, Oh, by the way, I quit. And the, the commissioner is so nice about it and everything. And I, I looked back at the time I flipped back and I'm like, dude, you haven't reported him to work in like eight months. So I think it's kind of a given that uh, that you're not working in the police force anymore. Because he, he was I, honestly, I mean, he was only a cop for like a handful. It, it was really just they were paying lip service to it. But I mean, he really only appeared in uniform as a cop for just a handful of issues. So it's, it's funny. I mean, I know that Engelhart's just kind of wrapping things up here with this, but it's, just, it's almost comical that, that there's even this moment because I'm wondering, did the, did the readers, were they aware or did they even remember that? Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> Cause he hadn't done it in so long. Mm. Well, it's, it's, but the commissioner knew his deal. Right. That's, that's right, really what yeah. it comes down to. So he wasn't, uh, you know, he, he's, he's like, you know, the only reason he was on there was kind of as a, as a I, I, I was going to say as a courtesy, but not so much as a courtesy, but as a, something to help along law enforcement purposes. Right. So, you know, the only thing I could see the, the commissioner maybe being a little annoyed uh, with the possibility that, you know, I, I let you do this because I thought it would actually help us. Uh, and you're not doing it really, you know, doesn't help us at all. Right. I didn't like that. Uh, that Cobra is kind of a chump in this, but of course I, I didn't meet this character until quite a number of years later. There's a, I, I couldn't tell you which issue it is, but there's a, a really great Spider-Man. Uh, I think it's an issue of amazing Spider-Man. Um, cover during the the time when Roger Stern was writer on the book, where uh, he's Spider-Man's hanging on the side of a building and Cobra is all wrapped around him and everything. Mm-hmm. And my memory of that is that Cobra was kind of a badass in that issue, and I, I've always thought of him that way because he was in the, the early stories I read, he was always teamed up with Mister Hyde, and I always thought the two of them made a really good team. They were they were formidable. So I've always thought of Cobra as a, as a formidable foe, but in this, he's, yeah. he's I don't like when they chump. make him into. A, uh, yeah, I don't like when they turn guys who should be decent into a chump in order to build up somebody else. Right. I mean, you do need to build up Madame Hydra slash Viper, uh, and and having her kill the original Viper because you're not going to use that character anymore. I guess that makes sense. Uh, right. 
but that's how you make her seem like, you know, built up, not by making the Cobra seem like a wuss, because now it's it's hard to rehabilitate him. When right. You do that. Exactly. Especially, you know, in the same storyline, you know, maybe in the future, you just kind of sweep this one under the carpet and, you know, do something else to create a, a an impression of him being tougher. But but I feel like that that's that was like one of the few missteps that I feel like uh, Engelhardt had in here. Now, this Roscoe dude doesn't he ends he's the one that's the the dead cap on the cover of a of a future issue, right? That's the one. The Red Skull uh, slaughters him for fun. Right. Poor it's, Roscoe. It's, I, I was I think of you know because if my memory is correct, you don't actually see that occur. You just find out. I think the the, the Falcon was actually like tortured, and she he says that you know the skull. Uh, freaked out when he realized it wasn't the real Captain America and slaughtered him. And it makes me think of Chekhov talking about Khan when they when right. they went. And they, <laughs> he, he was late. He was going to kill you. No, that's actually uh, the captain. But uh, I, I'm pretty sure, like, like Chekhov says something like, you know, he slaughtered them because he was so angry. Anyway, moving back to this one. So <laughs> I, I really... You know, I, I get a kick out of the Kirby stuff, even the really far out Kirby stuff like we're going to get coming up here with the Mad Bomb and everything. Uh, but I'm disappointed that it, that it caused an end to the Engelhart era. Right. You know, it, it's just it's disappointing because he, he just had such he had such a grasp of how to just keep this story going. Uh, you know, I, I think I consider this one of Cap's classic runs. So well, at the, at the risk of being accused of sacrilege, that's where I'm currently at in my cap read through is I'm, I'm stuck somewhere in generally about the middle. I think of that Kirby run. And I, I'm sorry, I'm just, I'm having the toughest time getting through it because I, I'm just not a fan of it. it it's so f- different than this um it's wackier it's it, it's a lot like that bicentennial thing that we read the what's that oh, called yeah. caps bicentennial battles or whatever yes it's just kind of it's it's very kirby of the time it's very far out and uh and i, I don't know it just doesn't appeal to me as much i, I really like this um there, there's just something about Engelhart's style and the, and the stories that he was telling it. Yeah, I was I was sad to see this this era come to an end. Although I'm I'm curious to get past the Kirby stuff because um, I started reading Cap. I, I think my very first issue, like when I became like a regular reader, I want to say it was the one. I couldn't tell you which issue number it was. It's just prior to the Jam Dimitteus run. It's it's the one where um, Cap is battling Doc Ock on the cover. Like Ock has him cornered um, on the cover of it, and I just remember that cover really struck me how beautiful it was. And I picked it up off the stands and, and went forward. And not long after that issue is where Nomad returns. Now, I had no idea who the hell Nomad was. I just I remember the cover. There's a reaction from Cap saying, how can he be Nomad when I was Nomad or some, something to that effect? And I was just intrigued. And that's what I always liked about, um, you know, when you would discover new 
history of, of characters back then is, you know, that there was a backstory, you know, that, mm-hmm. that other things that happened and you could learn about them, you know, through these stories or what. Um, so that's, that's where I got introduced to a, a lot of these elements like Nomad and everything. So this was fun to read, you know, the beginnings of Nomad because, you know, I, I knew about him, but I didn't know of, you know, I'd never read Cap's actual time, you know, in the costume. It was this later incarnation that I was more familiar with. Right. I got you. And I, you know, yeah, I I mean, I knew this Nomad because this, this was, this was within a year of when I started collecting comics. You know, this was my my first year of buying Captain America. uh, Right. and, And I was totally on board with it. Like I said, even, <laughs> even the Frank Robbins stuff kind of had me still, you know, anxious to get to the next issue. Uh, right. So, you know, this, this is just, uh, to me, this is just, like I said, a great run. Right. I'm sorry, my, my train of thought had derailed there a moment ago. My, my point was, though, is that um, from where I'm at right now in that read-through, but, you know, I, I'm anxious to get through the Kirby stuff because – my understanding is that until that era where I came in, you know, with Jam DeMatteis and, of course, Mike Zeck, you know, that's such a legendary run, you know, the Mike Zeck years and everything, mm-hmm. that whole stretch in there, with the exception of those few issues that um, Roger Stern and, and John Byrne did right around, I think it was like 255-ish, somewhere around there, with the exception of that, uh, there's very few issues I've read between like the end of Kirby's run and that, you know, that era uh, of, you know, the Mike Zeck era. Um, there's only a handful of issues I've read in that whole run. So I'm curious, you know, what that's all about. I, I don't think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's a cohesiveness to that particular era, is there? There wasn't like a regular writer or a regular team or anything, right? It was a lot of, it was a lot of changing hands and a lot of filler and, right? Am yeah, I right I think, about that? I think there was. I'm trying to remember for sure. I think there was, uh, but I also think I think we had a lot of decent short runs in there. Uh, you know, a lot of right. decent issues. You know, I remember the, you know, we got stuff with the Ameridroid and we got the, what's his name? What's the Animus? Uh, there, was, there was some definitely some fun stuff in there. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to all that because Kirby's en- run ends, what is it, like 214, 215, something like that? And then... Get around there. Yeah, something like that. So yeah, I'm I'm just I'm kind of just flipping at cover images here. I don't I don't have the creators in front of me, but um, yeah, just looking at at these covers. I mean, there's just so much of this stuff I'm I'm really just not familiar with at all. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to you know to discover it and see what it's all about. Because I want to say that that era with um, Stern and Burn, I think that starts about 247, something like that. And go, eh, it might be longer than I thought, because it goes 247 to, yeah, 255 was the last issue. And then, yeah, that issue with, uh, with Doc Ock, that's 259. That is two issues prior to that cover with Nomad returning that I was talking about. Um, and I misremembered it. Cap is not saying that on the cover. He must say it inside the issue then, but the cover just shows 
says, together again for the first time, Captain America and the man called Nomad. And Nomad is, is jumping. And it's a great Mike Zek cover. And he just says, Jump, he goes, uh, just hop back on that plane, hero man. California is my turf. And Cap's just kind of giving him a weird look. So he doesn't actually say it on the cover. It must be in the issue somewhere. But somewhere in the issue, it's revealed that Cap's annoyed with this guy because he doesn't know who he is. All he knows is that Nomad, you know, that this guy can't be the real Nomad because he was Nomad type of thing. So, yeah, I just I, I love those those little history things like that. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm with you on that. But yeah, right. it looks like there's some exciting stuff in between. There's uh, there's this one uh, where he's fighting Daredevil that I'm curious about. That's a great cover. I don't know who the artist is, but that's a really cool oh, yeah, cover. I, I anyway. <laughs> let's, uh, let's rate this one. Uh, the cover is dynamic. I think it's well laid out. I think it's exciting. It it made me pick up pick it up at the time, and if I saw it today, it would still make me pick it up. Uh, that said, I don't think it's perfect. I, I don't like the yellow building thing in the background. Uh, it's it's you know a couple of little the inking is a little bit rough on it, but uh, overall I think it's really really good. So I'm going to say a B plus. It's not perfect, but it's really really good. Uh, the interior art. Uh, Typical Sal Buscema. I, I always think, you know, for the most part, uh, with some exceptions, a lot of Sal Buscema's work is, you know, it, it, it it's it's very standard for him. Like he he has a certain style that you just see throughout. I really like the splash page with the, you know, the Steve Rogers walking towards the reader, and then kind of the large, uh, translucent Captain America head behind him. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think it's it's just pretty cool looking. Uh, I do agree with you that the inking is non-dynamic. Uh, there's a lot of it looks like there's a lot, just a lot of backgrounds that are just you know blank uh, or or minimal, and I hate that. There's there's no reason for it. You put a little detail in, um, so that, you know that bothers me. Otherwise, I mean the actual inking where it's done is fine. I just think there's a lot. I get the feeling there was a lot of erasing going on of backgrounds, uh, which bothers me. But overall, I still think it's a fairly solid issue, thanks solely to Sal Buscema. Uh, so I'm going to give a B to the interior art. Uh, and the story, the only criticism I have is the making Cobra look like a chump. Uh, I think that was a mistake, but I don't think it's fatal. Uh, it's just kind of, you know, screwing the character up for the next person who gets him uh so i'm gonna i'm gonna say a b on the story as well and i'm gonna give the book overall a b plus all right i think you're actually a little bit higher on the cover than i am but you know what i'm, I'm gonna go with your grade anyway i'm gonna go with the b plus it may be a little bit overly generous but I do like the cover. It's one of those covers that really grabs you. I think it's only when you kind of linger over it that you start to notice the, the deficiencies of it or kind of the, the weirdness of it. I think it's a little dark for one thing. Um, you know, just the use of colors. Uh, and it's funny because a lot of it's white and, and bright yellow, but still, even with those colors, it's very dark. I think a lot of that has to do with the coloring or, or maybe I should say miscoloring of Nomad's uniform, given how it's completely different colors inside the book. Um, 
the speed lines thing is is kind of weird because Cap doesn't have super speed. Um, and even if he, you know, even if he did, then he's changing pretty much in in broad daylight, you know, in view of these guys from Captain America into Nomad. So there's not a lot of mystery. I know it's it's just kind of a bizarre cover, but overall, I mean, just as an eye catching, hey, you want to buy this type of image, it totally works. So yeah, B plus I think is is fair on that. Interior art's a tough one because I really like Sal Buscema. Um, I didn't so much as a kid. I, I found him very kind of standard and workmanlike. And as you say, all of his stuff does tend to kind of look the same. Um, however, as I've gotten older, I, I've come to really like his stuff. Whenever I chance across it now, it just it's like comfort food. You know, it, it just it feels familiar. It feels like you know, Marvel of the time. And, and I kind of like that. Um, plus he was the artist on the bulk of the run of, of ROM space night. And I really like, you know, I really like his stuff on that. That's kind of where I really started to develop more of a, of a liking for him was on that run. Um, unfortunately he's teamed with Vinnie Coletta and I know it sounds like we're continually dumping on poor Vinnie Coletta and I, and I hate to be that way, but, you know, I got to call it like I see it. And when he does a shitty job, you got to kind of call him out. And he does the worst job on this issue. It's just terrible. He's not helping at all. And as you say, there's a lot of this where I think I think this is just a lazy, quick job. And maybe the book was running late. I don't know. But I mean, this is just this is getting it done. This is not supplementing the art. This is not enhancing the art. This is just simply getting the, the book inked. And out on the stands. And that that's a damn shame because Sal Buscema is a better artist than that. And he deserved a better inker than this. Um, but that said, you know, even with that hatchet job, I mean, there's there's a lot of dynamism in this that even Vinnie Coletta couldn't kill. So, I mean, it's a good looking book. There's a lot of action um, and, it, and it flows very well. I mean, Sal Buscema is just—he was a hell of a layout guy. So yeah, the art still looks really good despite all that. So art-wise, um, I think I'm going to go a B plus on the art as well. And a lot of that uh, is honestly that that splash page on page 17 is great. That you know the full page nomad, you know the first real nomad shot is really cool. I like that a lot. Um, Story-wise, I, I like the story. Silliness and all, you know, some of the annoying tropes, you know, and all embrace. I mean, I really have a fondness for this uh, for this Steve Englehart run. I think it's really good stuff. I think he understood the character. I think he understood comics and the things that that you know young boys read comics for uh, back during this time, and he, he made it exciting and kept it going. And there's a lot of stuff going on in this story. I mean. You know, you, you could, you know, in today's decompressed storytelling, I mean, you know, you could take the, the Steve Englehart run and make it, you know, six times longer than it actually was, you know, with modern storytelling. So, you know, it says a lot that there's so much happening in this one issue, um, but it, it never bogs down. It's it's really moving along and it's it's good stuff. So story wise, uh I think I'll go an A minus on the story. So overall, great on the book uh, of B plus. I really like this. B, B plus bordering on an A. It's 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 good stuff. I really enjoyed this one a lot, and I, I was glad that you brought it. And I was really thankful that it wasn't Frank Robbins. <laughs> no, I think I, I think I gave. I think I just finished giving it a B plus. But I would just add 
the uh, asterisk to it saying that if I were rating the entire run by Steve Englehart, I'm giving the run an A. Yeah, that's that's not to say this is a lesser part of it. It's not. Uh, I think this is a case of the whole the whole exceeds the sum of its parts. I, I always wonder if I'm saying that quite right. But I think no, you know, you reading, are, reading, yeah. reading one issue in it isn't giving you the total picture, whereas reading it, the whole thing, this is this is an A run. Like I said, I think this is one of the best cap runs, period. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. Well, do we have time for the other book, you think? Yeah, I think we could squeeze it in because uh, just by way of, of the story, uh, you, you, you provided me the book that you were, are covering. And I read the first story. There's actually three stories in here. And I read the first story and thought, OK, you know, I got it. And then I saw that your message said just the third story. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I actually I read the first and the third. Uh, but anyway, the, you know, the, it's, it's a fairly short story because it is three in the same book. Right. So I think uh, we can we could squeeze it in. All right. Well, there's a fun story behind this whole thing of, of why I chose this book. So the book we are looking at is Ghosts from DC Comics. It was a, a title simply called Ghosts. Um, this is actually the very last issue of the entire series. This is issue number 112. Uh, cover date of May 1982 is actually on sale on, on the stands, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, on February 4th, 1982 has a cover on it by Dave Manick, I guess is how you pronounce it, M-A-N-A-K. I've never heard of this guy. Um, simply uh, showing a skull and crossbones, and somebody has spray-painted the name Joey on the uh, forehead of the skull. Uh, it's a it's an interesting cover. It's uh, It wouldn't necessarily have made me snatch it up off the stands. Uh, I don't think I ever bought... Uh, an issue of ghosts or most any other horror comic off the stands, honestly. But so why did I pick this particular book? So yes, why have, did you pick this particular book? I have been on a quest, and I'm uh, I'm actually fast narrowing in on uh, on completing my quest. But I have been on a quest to own everything that uh, Tony Dzeniga ever worked on in comics you know, any, anything published that, uh, that Tony Dzeniga worked on. Cause I'm just, uh, I'm a huge Tony Dzeniga fan. Uh, I love the man's work. Uh, I think he was a hell of an artist and, uh, and I just like to own it all. And so that's why I own this particular issue. I acquired it not long ago for not much money and uh, I was really glad to get it. So I thought, um, you know, as I was struggling to find something to bring to the show, you know, as, as I said before, I'm always looking to bring new and unusual things that we haven't covered before. And we've never covered an issue of this to my remembrance. So I thought, well, this would be fun. You know, I'll bring this title and, uh, and there's some Tony DiZaniga stuff in here. So I opened it up and I read the first story, uh, which is by, um, Mark, uh, Texiera, who I also like, he, he did the pencils and Tony DiZaniga did the inks on it, and it was this uh, story about uh, these kids finding this uh, skull of a pirate, and the pirate ends up possessing one of the kids, and blah, blah, blah. Long story short, eh, it was okay. It wasn't good or it wasn't bad. It was just kind of a standard, like, goofy little horror story type of thing. Um, so I kept reading in the book, and I chanced across the next one, uh, which was a story called uh, Let the Punishment Fit the Crime, 
which was written by Robert Kaniger, uh, art by Howard Bender. And it was actually a really cool story of, all about John Wilkes Booth. Um, it takes place. Um, it starts with the assassination of President Lincoln. You know, Booth kills him um, in the Ford Theater and then he goes on the run. And eventually he's cornered and shot slash burned to death uh, in a barn. And as he's dying, the devil comes to him. Satan actually comes to him and basically sentences him to eternally relive this moment of assassination, but with he himself being the person that is assassinated repeatedly for all eternity. And I thought, ooh, that's dark and creepy and kind of weird. So let's cover this one instead. But I kept reading and the third and final story in the book actually intrigued me even more than that. So the book, uh, the story that we're actually covering is the last story in the book, uh, which is called A Little Knowledge, was the title of the story, uh, written by Stan Timmons, who I've never heard of, with art by Arthur Garoche, I'm going to assume is how it's spelled, G-E-R-O-C-H-E, Garoche. Who I told is Gene Colon. <laughs> I did, When I looked too. at this, I said, that's Gene Colon art. That's what I thought. And I even looked up this name thinking this is a pseudonym for Gene Colon. And not only did I think it was Gene Colon, I thought it was Gene Colon inked by Tony DiZaniga. Because tell me that that first splash page of the story doesn't look like it's straight out of uh, the Phantom Zone miniseries. Oh, yeah. That's exactly no what it looks like. Or or out of, uh, say, like um, – uh, Night Force or something like that. I really, yeah, I thought the same thing. I totally thought it was Gene Colan. But as far as I could determine, Arthur Garosh really was a, a person of his own. He, it was not just a pseudonym for uh, for Gene Colan. Anyway, short and simple on this, um, there's a detective at a crime scene, and uh, this man has died, and a uh, lieutenant turns over to him this uh, parchment that he found. And it turns out when the detective looks at the list that it's a list of names, deaths, basically how this person died, and dates. But all these dates are in the future. So this is basically a list of when these people are going to die and how they're going to die. And the detective, being kind of a, a slimy operator... He sets up a nice little racket where he calls the person on the list and gives them information about somebody somebody else's impending death to show that he's not just a crank. And then when that person dies of whatever he said they were going to die of, then he calls the person back again to say, now I have information about your impending death. And I'll tell you all about it for such and such sum of money. So he's setting up basically a I don't know if you'd call it an extortion racket necessarily, but it's it's a racket where he's uh, profiting off of this advanced knowledge of these people's death. So one night he gets a visit by death, the Grim Reaper. And as much as I really love this story, there, there is one moment that you, you can't help it is actually kind of silly where <laughs> the Grim Reaper admits on page. Oh, shit. The pages aren't numbered. But anyway, he confronts this guy and he says uh, he said the detective says to death, he says, what do you want? 
because it isn't my time yet. I know I have the list. And death says, which is precisely what I want. He says, I'm afraid I was careless and dropped my list when I claimed that playboy. So in other words, he just, you know, death is, is a klutz and he, he dropped his, his death list and left it behind. And it's taken him apparently. So I want to know what's he been doing in all this time while this this detective has been running this racket. Well, did death just go to the movies? Did he take a vacation? <laughs> death you takes know. a holiday. Isn't that a little, yeah. the story yeah. name? Uh, I, I, I like to take it a step further. Not only is death a klutz, but he's a perv. He, when he's talking about Playboy, it was, it was actually a magazine that he was thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, death has come not to claim this man's life, but because he just wants his list back. So, the detective doesn't want to give him the list because he's got a nice little racket going on here and everything. But he finally does agree that he will give the list back to death on one condition. And what's the list? The condition? He wants his name stricken from the list. He, he wants to come off the list. So essentially, he wants to be made immortal. And he asks death, uh, he says, do we have a deal? And uh, death just simply says, we have dot, 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 an agreement. So he strikes his name uh, and he says, I strike your name from the book of the dead, Michael Flynn. From this moment forth, we will never meet again. For me, you no longer exist. And yet you are too dark a stain with too terrible a, uh, a knowledge to be allowed to prey on your fellow humans. And with that, death disappears and... Flynn realizes that something's changed. He says, what happened to the lights? I'm, I'm on my back. Let me light a match to see what's going on. And he lights a match and realizes that he has been sealed, uh, I don't know, underground or in a coffin or something with all of the earthly riches that he pilfered from these people using his advanced knowledge of their death. So he's basically been entombed with... It looks like in the picture, it's hard to make out, but it looks like like gold coins and rings and jewelry and all this stuff that he's he's gotten from these people. And it just you see him kind of like beating or scratching on the on the roof above him going, no, no. And then we cut to the final panel of the book where death is standing over Michael Flynn's grave. And it just, the tombstone just reads Michael Flynn with a birthday of 1942 and no death date. And death says, for thee will, Michael Flynn, rest secure in the knowledge that however much you may come to wish it were it were so, our paths will never meet again. Adieu. And it just strikes me as funny that death would say adieu. <laughs> OK, <laughs> but despite some of the silliness, I thought this was a great little. It's so creepy. You know, it's it's really and I love I love when death is depicted as, as looking like the ghost of Christmas future. Um, this, yeah, it, the, the illustrations are what really make this story for me. It's got a great, um, you know, film noir look. It, it really, I mean, seriously, it looks so much like Gene Colan. It really reminds me a lot of, uh, of some of Colan's best stuff, like say uh, Nathaniel Dusk. It's a little bit Nathaniel Dusk meets like, like Tomb of Dracula or Night Force or something. Or, uh, yeah, was that the name of that title? Yeah, Night Force. 
It's reminiscent it's, of, of Colin's non-superhero work. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, this is definitely uh, somebody, uh, this uh, Garrosh, this is somebody I'm going to have to keep an eye out for because I really loved the look of the art. Um, it, it really made the story. The story, you know, overall is, yeah, it's, it's kind of simple. It, it's good. It's creepy and everything, but it's really the art. It's the moodiness of the art that really made this one for me. So, uh, so while I came for the, uh, for the Dizaniga, um, it was really this third story that really, uh, that really grabbed me. I thought this was some really good stuff. So yeah. what do you think of it? I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I thought the story and the art was very compelling. Uh, just, I mean, you do have to get by the whole, whoops, I lost my death list moment. But other than that, <laughs> it's, it's a pretty compelling concept. It, it's, you know, the, the fact that, uh, that this guy got a hold of death's list and he's taking advantage of it. And then, you know, he, he wants to be taken off the list and he does, but you get, you know, your O. Henry slash Twilight Zone slash Night Gallery twist ending. Yeah. Uh, you know where, yeah. where where he's buried just the same uh, and tortured for the, for all of eternity. Uh, I just think that's really really cool and it's it's chilling in its own way. Uh, that's the only reason I don't think it's necessarily a Twilight Zone episode, only because I, I think it's even a little darker than the Twilight Zone. Oh yeah. Uh, but you know, well, it, it, it's reminiscent to me of the story of the thug who gets shot and then uh, Sebastian Cabot is Pip and he's taking him through things and, and he's winning at everything and, you know, playing slots and he's winning at poker and all the girls are with him and all. And eventually he says, Oh, this is boring. Cause I can't lose and everything just goes my way. I don't want to be in heaven anymore. Send me to the other place. And Sebastian Cabot gets this evil look on his face. He says, you are in the other place. And I just oh, love awesome. that. And this, this is reminiscent of that to me. <laughs> Yeah, I liked this. I liked this a lot. I, you know, these are the type of of these sorts of stories that really work for me when they've got a good creepy ending to them like that. And uh, and this one definitely was. You know, the the one with Wilkes Booth was was pretty good too. But I, I thought this one was a step up. Um, it, it's so funny though that you know, like I say, I, the whole reason I, I I came to this party was. For the Dizaniga, and while I liked the art in that first story, uh, yeah, the first story itself was kind of like meh to me. So yeah, it's just kind of funny, but yeah, I, I love when I when I you know can discover a, a whole new side of comics that you know it was kind of previously a, a blank slate to me, and uh, yeah, horror comics, especially like DC horror comics, have always been a huge blank slate to me. I just never really had any interest in them, but I've recently uh, uh, revamped my my want list, you know, for for particular artists' works that I'm looking for, and uh, and a lot of you know the the artists that I really like, like say uh, uh, you know Dizaniga, of course, uh, Joe Staten, uh, Val Mayerick. Um, Don Newton, guys like that, a lot of them uh, did work on titles like these, you know, just, you know, short little, you know, couple page stories here and there, you know, where they, you know, provided, you know, pencil or, you know, pencils or inks or something like that. Um, it's fun to just keep an eye out for this sort of thing, you know, in the 50 cent bin or whatever, because I know that I, I frequently chance across 
you know, old like horror comics and war comics and, you know, the, the genres that typically, you know, when I'm sitting down and digging through a box, I just breeze right by them because they don't hold any interest for me and I don't have any knowledge of them. Well, now that I know, you know, now that I have a list in front of me of, you know, some of the, the key issues where some of these guys provided work to these, you know, now they're going to be you know on my radar type of thing. So gives me new stuff to, to hunt for in those back issue bins. So I, I like that sort of thing. You know, it's brings back the thrill of the hunt sort of thing. So definitely, but good. I'm, I'm glad you like this. I, I, I thought it was fun too. We so ready for I, grades? I, I think the... you could eliminate the cover from the grading because the cover has nothing to do with the story. And quite frankly, yeah. I think the cover is subpar. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, it ties into the first story only. So yeah, it doesn't it doesn't pertain to to this story. So yeah, all right. So judging, uh, you know, grading this just strictly on that third story, um, art wise, uh, I'm gonna give it a straight up A on the art. Um, again, uh, it, it is so so similar to uh, to uh, Gene Colan inked by. Tony Dizaniga that I had a hard time not believing that it, it wasn't that art team. It totally looks like it to me. And that to me is, you know, that's extremely high praise because I, I hold that art team in incredibly high regard. So yeah, the, the art's fantastic on this story. you know, I'm, I think I'm going to give the story a straight up a too, because, you know, I, I think it's only if you, you know, you, you think about it over long or, or you allow yourself to kind of, you know, poke a little fun at it that, that the whole thing with death losing his list is is humorous, boarding on goofy. I mean, if you kind of overlook that, then the, the entire story works on a, on a very straight uh, basis. And uh, and yeah, it, it's a it's a good story. It's well told and uh, it's got an incredibly uh, dark and chilling ending to it you know this this poor slob being entombed for you know seemingly for eternity now it would be interesting of course this was the last issue of the series and everything but it would be interesting if there were a way to revisit this this michael flynn character because i mean if he's truly immortal then you know hundreds thousands tens of thousands whatever years later presumably he could he could come to the surface again you know he could be discovered by you know, future, whatever, you know, they're, you know, they relocate the cemetery or, you know, they build a building and, you know, whatever the case may be. So, I mean, there's potential for, you know, further exploration of this character. I, I don't know that you'd necessarily need to, but, you know, it's, it's definitely there. So it'd be interesting, you know, if <laughs> you can make were... it like Michigan J frog. Uh, if he was down there at the end going, hello, my baby, hello, my honey, underground, and that's how it ended, uh, I'd totally give it an A+. Plus, so, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, overall grade, uh, uh, you know, the the issue as a whole, grade, you know, the story as a, as a grade, you know, story and art is definitely an A. The issue overall, um, I'd say an A- minus as an overall for the overall issue. Um because the, the stories are of, of varying quality, both in story and art. But overall, I mean, you know, Ghost number 112, if you see it, you know, for a buck or less, snap it up. It's it's fun. It's worth your time. Yeah, I would say I have no question I'm immediately ready to give the, co- the uh, artwork an A uh, on this particular story. Uh, it's, it's moody. It's 
very good storytelling. It, you know, and it's just well done. Uh, there's, there's nothing about it that, that lets me down. Uh, the story itself, you know, it's eight pages long. Uh, as, as we've, we've beaten to death, the only thing about the story that, that is, that just makes you scratch your head is the whole, you know, oops, I lost my list of dead people or people <laughs> to, to kill. That just seems totally silly and ridiculous. But if you get by that, otherwise, you know, it's an eight page story and it, it gets you the moodiness. It gets you creeped out. It does everything it should do. You know, the story complements the art, the art complements the story. So I'm going to, I'm going to say, A's on both, and I'm giving I'm giving this story an A. Uh, the fascinating thing is of the three stories, and I did read the middle one. I forgot that I had read it until you talked about it a little bit, and then I did remember it. Of the three stories, the one that they chose as the cover story is the weakest of the three. Yeah, which is, which is kind of strange. But it's I guess I I didn't do a page count except for the last story, which is eight pages. Maybe it may maybe it's the longest story. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, I guess overall the book would drop a little just because the, the first story is not really that gripping as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but the one story, no question in my mind, a artwork, a story. So overall a, I'm glad you found this one. Yeah, me too. You know, it's weird. I, I just, uh, I, I had Mike's amazing world pulled up here already. So I, I clicked real quick on Arthur Garoche. He has a total of one, two, three, four, five, six stories. That's it. Hmm. That, that's all he's done. And they well, were all unless unless Mike was unaware of something. I mean, while while I think Mike is really good, you know, it's possible there's a story out there that he's unaware of. Right. Well, yeah, that's true too. I I, I thought you were going a different angle. I, I'm still not a hundred percent convinced that he's not a pseudonym. But I don't know. I mean, if you go into <laughs> Okay, so I went into the DC wiki. Arthur Garoche is a comic book artist. That's it. That's all there is. Well, what so, do you need to know? <laughs> right. But, I mean, I don't know about you, but that sort of thing makes me crazy when you can't... I mean, because there are a number of comic book creators over the years that there, there's precious little information about them. Mm-hmm. One, two, three, four, five. Yeah, DC. The DC wiki has the same thing. Six total stories. So it was. Let's see here. You've got. Secrets of Haunted House. Two issues. Unexpected. This issue of Ghosts. House of Mystery. And then Elvira's House of Mystery. Number one. All short stories. Huh. I don't know, but I, I tell you what, I'm going to be on the lookout for the other issues because I'm I'm curious if the art, you know, is as good as it was in this issue. I, I really enjoyed it. You know, come to think of it, I wasn't familiar with the uh, with the writer. I don't want to short the the writer on the story either. Stan Timmons, that name. That also yeah. does not not ring a bell to me. No, it doesn't to me either. He did. Uh, well, it's funny. I think I have a number of these kind. He did uh, several issues of Blue Ribbon Comics from Archie and I think I've got a number of these because a number of these uh, have uh, have Dizaniga art in them and then the fly for Archie which also is Dizaniga Lance Armstrong 
or, or excuse me, Lance Strong, rather, Lance Strong the Shield, um, which is also Decenica. So I don't know. This this still is making me think that maybe maybe it is a pseudonym. I don't know, but possibly. I'm not sure. But if it's a pseudonym for anybody but Gene Colon, <laughs> or are you talking about the the, the writer now? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I, just the fact that, you know, here's here's Stan, this Stan Timmons teamed up with this Arthur Garoche, which, I, again, I think looks so much like, um, yes, Gene Colan, but also, again, very much, you know, the inking style very much reminds me of uh, of Tony Dizniga. Here he is working on books for Archie. You know, titles and, and, and in some cases issues themselves that have these Niga in them. So it's just I don't know. That seems a bit a bit coincidental to me. I, I don't know. It's just weird. I'm gonna have to see if I can do some more digging into this. But I don't know if anybody else knows anything more about this uh, Arthur Garosh guy. Let me know. I'd I'd be curious. We talked earlier but, uh, about uh, welcoming email. That would certainly welcome email that would educate us on these people. Yeah, most definitely. I'm trying to remember who it was. there was somebody else a while back, but I mean it happens to me all the time where I get curious about you know certain writers or whatever. And there was some DC writer from back in like the 50s or 60s I, I was trying to look up, and there was like just nothing on this person, you know, other than you know here's the stories they wrote type of thing. But there was no, and that that always makes me sad. It's like. You know, here's somebody that that lent so much to you know to a piece of American history, you know, Americana history, I should say, you know, comic book history, and then, you know, they're they're unsung. You know, there's there's just no information about them. But I don't know. For a lot of those guys too, they were working, you know, in a in a dismissed medium, you know, at a time when they were probably embarrassed to be working. You know, a lot of them, you know, they wouldn't. They wouldn't exactly, you know, trumpet from the rooftops that, yeah, I, I work in comic books, you know. Yeah. That's very true. But if you find anything uh, more, just uh, let me know. Maybe we'll maybe we'll have a follow-up show. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely going to do some more digging around. But, you know, this, uh, this Stan Timmons has a relatively small body of work, too. It wouldn't be too hard to, to collect his uh, collect his stuff. But one way or the other, you know, even if it's, you know, if it's getting the physical issues or just checking them out in the CBR, I think I'm going to look into more of uh, more of the works of both of these guys, and because I, I really did dig this story a lot. Cool. So, well, I, we're going to call it quits on that, though. That'll do it for the show for today. Uh, I hope everybody enjoyed listening, and uh, see you next time. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? 
Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Nah, that sucks. <laughs>